the global order is changing. Neoliberalism is under unprecedented strain. There's a general sense that the rules by which our societies have been structured for the last several decades have broken down, and that our leaders and our institutions have failed us. If neoliberalism was the economic base to the globalization superstructure, what will the consequences of this shift be on the lives of ordinary people? Join Globalization Cafe as we offer uncompromising political and economic analysis on the global issues that affect our everyday lives. Because the political conversation matters. June 2017 will mark 50 years since the beginning of Israel's occupation of the Palestinian territories. Some two and a half decades since peace talks began, Negotiations to resolve the Israel-Palestine conflict through the formation of two independent states have become entirely stagnant. Instead, life in the West Bank and Gaza Strip remains economically, politically and socially suppressed under Israel's occupation. For Israelis, the political environment has grown ever more polarised. Social divisions have deepened and there remains a persistent threat of low-level violence, both from Palestinians and from far-right-wing extremists. Yet it's important to be clear, while there's certainly real suffering on all sides, there is neither parity between the conditions endured by Israelis and Palestinians, nor is the situation static. Palestine is occupied, and Israel is its occupier. As such, despite seeking recognition as a state, Palestine remains unrecognized by most of the world's powerful nations. It is territorially and politically divided, and its land and resources are subject to an ongoing process of colonisation. So what hope remains for Palestine? To discuss these questions and more, we're joined by Dr Taufik Haddad, the author of the excellent recent book, Palestine Limited, Neoliberalism and Nationalism in the Occupied Territory. I'm your host, Dr Philip Leachnow. I spoke to Dr Taufik Haddad on the phone. I began by asking him to explain the origins of the Israel-Palestine conflict. Many people tend to think that uh, the roots of the conflict sort of revolve around some ancient hatred between Jews and Arabs or some sort of biblical claims to the land or whatnot. This is much more part of the mythology and how uh, it, it sort of has come off in recent years, particularly in light of how the media tends to uh, sort of belittle or try to create sort of a simpler narratives around what the story is about. In truth, the conflict's history is much more recent and, and, and basically derives from sort of three sets of actors uh, uh, that sort of uh, compose the conflict, so to, so to speak. I mean, the first one derives, of course, from the larger sort of Western legacy of Western imperial interests uh, around the world and uh, what happened to those. So. Of course, you had sort of the British Empire, which was at its heyday around the end of the uh, 19th century. And uh, of course, the Ottoman Empire was collapsing after 500 years of dominating the, the Arab region. Now, uh, the area of Palestine, it's important to note, is obviously a very key geostrategic area. And it was for imperialism, uh, Western imperialism, particularly the British, insofar as uh, access to the route to India was very important. You also have Palestine being specifically located between Western Asia and wh where it meets Africa. And so uh, England had, or Great Britain had uh, both 
Egypt and India as sort of key nodes on its imperial uh, map and uh, wanted to be, be sure that it could secure these areas. Uh, and so Palestine sort of played this key role right there. The interest to have control over this area in light of the weakening power of the Ottoman Empire was uh, very much in the mindset of uh, imperial forces. And in that, that, that sense, it was also a kind of uh, evolution of imperial and colonial designs insofar as it wasn't going to be a project that was going to be sponsored by British colonial settler colonialism insofar as British people would go into Palestine and actually start living there. But it came in the form of actually sponsoring what is the second set of actors. And that, of course, relates to the, the, the larger Jewish question. As, as you well know, and your listeners know, uh, the, the onset of nationalism is a fairly recent development that has to do with the onset of late capitalism from 1850s onwards. And the emergence of nationalism within the advanced capitalist countries of Western Europe posed questions around the identity of uh, who was uh, a British, who was an Italian, who was a German, or what, uh, so to speak. And this created the contradiction of the Jewish question, made it much more palpable. And within, within Jewish circles, uh, the majority opinion was that uh, the Jewish question could best be answered in terms of fighting for equality in, in, within these new nation states that were being uh, uh, designed or com coming into being in the period. Uh, only a small minority of uh, Jews uh, came to the conclusion that they needed to uh, establish their own nationalism. And these used to be the uh, Zionist movement, of course. And it was based upon trying to borrow concepts of nationalism and apply them to the Jewish uh, Jewish people trying to uh, transform what was fundamentally a, a, a religion into a nation and claiming all the all the attributes uh, of nationalism. The third set of actors, of course, that uh, constitutes the conflict is, of course, the uh, you know the larger question of uh, the Arab people and and uh, Arab nationalism, uh, pan-Arab nationalism, and uh, of course Palestinian nationalism. And this has its roots like any, any nationalism within the uh, experience of the Arab people under the Ottomans for 500 years, the advance of capitalism within, these, within this context, and eventually they're rising up to try and claim a stake for national independence and self-determination. And of course, this came into contrast, in, into conflict, with, uh, with both the Zionist agenda for Palestine and, of course, the imperial agenda for Palestine. We, we must take into consideration that, you know, the Arab region spans a very large area, uh, very many people, around 300 million people today at least, uh, spans particularly significant geostrategic points. And this, and this area is inhabited by people with elements of commonality that could constitute a national consciousness and a national project. And for that reason, it became important, of course, to fragment and to break the potential for this to coalesce. Because at the end of the day, in the big power game that's at play, uh, if this area, with this region, with these strategic resources, could uh, unite 
you would have a serious uh, competitor that uh, that uh, a block of uh, states or, or, or geographical territory that uh, would uh, would need to that Western powers would need to deal with. You, you're basically saying that the factors that, that that go into the conflict are the subjection of Palestine to colonialism by these broader forces, including the British Empire, and then afterwards um, the international system dominated by the United States, and the uh, use of Palestinian land for the purposes of Zionism, and of course, you also said that there was a, it's a, it's a way of dividing the Arab world, uh, and, and potentially seeing off a threat to Western dominance. Yes, I mean it's like, it's 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 a political issue. The the fact of the matter is, Israel could not have been created were it not for. Uh, strong Western backings, and uh, of course, it also helped that the Soviets supported it in the beginning as well. We have to realize that the Zionist movement lacked uh, a mother country. It was not like uh, the French in Algeria or the British in India, which had a mother country. It was a marginal movement amongst uh, amongst uh, Jewish Europeans who came up with this idea that uh, a Jewish national homeland in Palestine was going to be the answer for their issue. And uh, this was the minority opinion. It was actually the reactionary uh, uh, position within the Jewish, uh, within those who were, who were, who were uh, thinking about through these, these issues. And but so they needed the, to make their project a success. They needed to sell their services to an imperial power to gain this kind of mother support of an imperial power. And that's why still today, Israel needs this major Western or a mother power backing it, giving it this diplomatic, political, military, financial support and and, and sponsoring it to play this key role of being a permanent uh, supportive state in a key geostrategic region. That's the fundamental issue that needs to be taken into consideration because and that 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 ensures the, the permanent pro western agenda of israel uh in the region basically uh where whereas it it, it, it could not the western powers would not be able to rely upon a local political uh, force to to be able to provide them the same support and services as israel does we know we of course the other side of the question that we haven't talked about is the fact that the you know the the arab region there's a high concentration of dictators authoritarian states many of them exist by uh, by sheer support of, of of western powers uh and they are non-democratic states and uh so when when revolution comes up as we saw in the past five or six years in these areas these regimes can go very fast but that's not the case of Israel, which is basically uh, uh, always has a pro-Western orientation to it because it, it it's an organically linked to this this larger Western project. And of course, the, the, the establishment of the state came from Western European Jews and Eastern European Jews who had links. Their links were with these European powers. They were not with the Arab periphery, or, or you know, they were not their their financial, political, social links. We're not with the rest of the Arab world. Later on, you have Jews who come from these areas to live in Israel. And you have a colonial project which has its own momentum and develops 
a kind of uh, hybrid identity as a product of the colonial experience. Uh, but still, though, it's the fundamental uh, orientation of the state is pro-Western. And that's why still today we always hear about Israel saying and trying to claim that we will always be your ally in the West. We are the front lines of fighting Islamic terror and extremism. If you take the discourse and you look at what it was 40 years ago, they'll say the exact same thing, but they say it's against radical Arab nationalism. Uh, today it takes on the form of Islamism because radical Arab nationalism failed and collapsed. So most Canadians will have, uh, have heard of, uh, you know, the ongoing seemingly endless negotiations around a two-state solution. Uh, can you tell us what that means? Um, why they never seem to get anywhere? And But in particular, I think people would like to know not just what the negotiations mean at the high-end level, but what does it mean for people on the ground in, in Palestine? Sure, the real world. Well, uh, I mean, what's commonly known as the peace process uh, and what Canadians, your listeners will hear on a daily basis uh, around it and, and the fatigue that exists. Believe us, the fatigue is not just uh, amongst Canadians, it's, uh, it's domestically as well. But it refers to the peace process, a very distinct period. The last, uh, you know, 40 years or so, uh, or basically it starts in the early 70s with the Americans, soon after 1967, when Israel occupied the remaining 22% of historical Palestine. This, of course, was a, key, uh, was a key move, because when Israel did that, it occupied the Golan Heights, the, the West Bank, which had been under the Jordanians, and all of the Sinai. So it didn't just mean that war, uh, this 1967 war, meant that it wasn't just the Palestinians who were paying the cost of the uh, of uh, the creation of Israel and of Zionism, uh, in terms of loss of land and in terms of diaspora of its people, but it's where major Arab states that were losing land and territory and and, and everything else. So, this uh, the peace process comes up as a political formulation, backed by the Western powers, to try and now res- supposedly resolve the issue, but resolving it on its terms. Okay, and, and preserving its interests. Now, what were its interests? Its interests were the security of the state of Israel as a permanent ally in this region. And the fact that Israel had taken over all these lands meant that they could now break or attempt to break a common united Arab position vis-a-vis Israel and negotiate bilaterally with each of the states to try and say, look, well, do you want your land back? Okay, if you want your land back, then you've got to, you've got to make peace with us, and uh, you know, set, we'll set the terms to it. And and of course, the the key moment in the peace process is 1979, uh, when they are able to do this with with Egypt and uh, come up after the Camp David Accords, to to to. For, to, to result in an Israeli-Egyptian peace agreement that resulted in the return of the Sinai, but the demilitarization of uh, the, the Sinai itself, the Americans funding the Egyptian regime, uh, dictatorship, it should be said, you know, to the tune of uh, $3 billion a year, and uh, the exiting of Egypt, the major, largest, uh, and, and strongest Arab power from the larger circle of the Arab-Israeli conflict. So when we speak of today the peace process between the Israelis and Palestinians, which Canadians have been hearing of for 20 years, it has to do with this sort of 
trying to finalize the final part of this historical arc. Now, here it's important to understand what Israel has been doing since 1967. Okay, we spoke that Israel occupied 78% of the, of the land and then kicked out most of the Palestinians in 1948. We spoke about how they conquered the West Bank, which was the majority of the remainder of Palestine. Uh, but key important aspects of the West Bank being, obviously, it's the highlands. It also controls all the water. Uh, where, where most of the water comes from that, that, that supplies Israel. So in any case, there, there was this key issue, which was the fact that Israel, unlike in 1948, the majority of Palestinians actually remain in historical Palestine, okay? The war was fundamentally against the other Arab states, right? And Nasserism, it was an attack on the Syrians and the Egyptians. But this short period of the war, meant that Israel conquered that territory and the majority of Palestinians remained. That population was 1 million back then. Today, it's almost uh, 5 million today, if you add together East Jerusalem, West Bank, and Gaza. So uh, it, this created a, a fundamental issue for uh, and, and, and contradiction for Israel insofar as its self-definition as a Jewish democratic state. If they were to give citizenship to this non-Jewish population that they were controlling, it would erode the self-described Jewish definition of the state of Israel. If they were to deny this population citizenship, it would erode the democratic nature of the Israeli state. What to do? Uh, Israel still wanted the territory, it wanted to unite the occupations of 1967 with 1948, take over these lands, take over the high hill, uh, hill areas, take over the water, take over anything that was important ideologically. What it didn't want was the population, the non-Jewish population there, which was remaining rooted on the land, unwilling to leave because they understood just that, that Zionism had a larger project to try to expel them. So there solution, and I might say it was a temporary solution, a holding pattern, was to try and find some form of, of, uh, of, of uh, external force that could govern these areas for Israel, get it off of their uh, statistics, their nomenclature, so to speak, to have Jordan or Egypt or some other, some form of collaborationist power to be able to administer to the needs of this sizable population, uh, and, but without this forming the basis of actually producing uh, 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 and, uh, and creating the, 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 the nest within which a national movement could grow up now within, you know, very close to what was pre-1967 Israel. So this, the, the, today's peace process and the Oslo process was very, was very much about bringing the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which had emerged in diaspora after the 1948 expulsion, the emergence, they had combined and sort of articulated their national movement within this organization, the PLO, at a particular historical moment where they were particularly weak because of the Soviet Union's collapse, their traditional backers, together with the collapse of the Arab order, together with the collapse of uh, of, uh, of the post-Gulf uh, War 
situation in, in 1990, 1991, where, where the Arab states had differences with the PLO over 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 what happened in Iraq and Kuwait in the in the in the Gulf War of 1990-91, thereby leading to uh, them cutting off the finances of the, of of the PLO. Basically, at this unique historical moment, the PLO, which was about to go bankrupt, signed onto an agreement that said, "Yes, we will play the role of coming in and administering to." the local population of these millions of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, and potentially, hopefully, they, they wanted East Jerusalem. Uh, and this would have freed Israel from having to, you know, uh, maintain roads and, 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 uh, uh, and uh, you know, provide different kinds of education and health services, uh, which was highly problematic for Israel, as I said, because it, it challenged their Jewish democratic definition of the state. Now, we still had conflicting and contrasting uh, interests between the two parties. And uh, and this was to be worked out in the framework of the peace process, uh, what is commonly known as the Oslo process. Now, why doesn't it go anywhere? The question is, the fact of the matter is, this framework that was created by the Americans and, and put on paper in the Oslo process was done according to the the, 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 the interests of the powerful. It did not link uh, the, the what was to take place to international law resolutions, which would have protected Palestinian rights, which call for, of course, self-determination of the Palestinian people, including for statehood, which call for uh, the rights of return of the Palestinian people, which calls for Israel to get out of Jerusalem, which says that settlements are, are, are a war crime, etc. So, uh, but this framework that was created was not uh, was not linked to to, uh, to to enforcing and implementing international law. On the contrary, these were sidelined, and basically the rules of the powerful were were, uh, were uh, and the interests of both Israel and the Zionist movement and Western imperialism were basically the consensual middle ground between those two sets of actors were what led to the reality we have today. Uh, when it comes to describing what the average situation is like on the ground, it's well documented by, by international Israeli and Palestinian human rights organizations. We speak very openly, it's well known that we have 50 years of occupation, we have a situation that approximates apartheid, we have uh, settlements which constitute war, war war crimes, we have a complete uh, lack of any respect for Palestinian human rights. All we have is a situation where some forms of limited self-governance are tolerated by, the, by, by Israel because they need to be tolerated, because if, if they weren't tolerated, Israel would have to do it themselves. Maybe just expand a little bit on... on you're in Ramallah right now. Um, what is it like um, for Palestinians in Ramallah, in Nablus, in Hebron, um, in a day-to-day, the day-to-day life under these conditions? Yes, I mean, the fact of the matter is uh, the, what Israel has been successful and the peace prospect process has been successful in doing is fragmenting uh, the Palestinian people. Basically, Israel's interests are, are diverse across the area. So uh, certain areas they have pulled out from and other areas they are directly in, 
in control of. I mean, it should be said the Oslo process created an area A where uh, where the Palestinian Authority would have supposedly full control, but full control over limited functions, it should be said. An area B, which is a, a form of joint control, and area C, which is the majority of the West Bank, 60% of the land, is fully still under Israeli control. The Gaza Strip is a whole other arrangement, and it's uh, basically under blockade. Uh, so you have two million people under blockade. So it's difficult to speak of a common Palestinian experience. I mean, certainly when we do speak in common terms, it has to do with the fact that, of course, the Palestinians are still under occupation. And that basically means that every aspect of their life is under Israeli control and at the behest of Israeli prerogatives. Now, here it's something quite important to mention insofar as Israel has 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 had the uh, you know, clear designs on these areas, and it's, it has been very interested to prevent the Palestinians from being able to develop a, uh, a strong uh, Palestinian economy. Its developmental character has been described by academics as being one of being de-developed. Is, uh, the Palestinian territories are not just underdeveloped, uh, but they are de-developed. Israel controls everything. It, you know, if, if the Palestinian Authority wants to build uh, a concrete plant, then uh, it's basically, uh, it needs water that the Israelis would have to provide. It would need electricity that the, Isra- uh, uh, that the Israelis would have to provide. It would need to spread uh, electricity wires and uh, to, to different parts of the West Bank, which it would need to go through Israeli-controlled areas. So uh, basically, you have an entire huge network and structure uh, where Israel gets to say yes or no to uh, literally every micro decision. Now, uh, that, 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 that has a huge impact on, on Palestinian life because if Palestinians want to go to school, if they want to receive medical treatment, if they, anything that entails forms of travel, even things that don't entail travel, such as like internet uh, usage, Israel could, if they wanted to, stop this, and they do by stopping stopping technology transfer. How do you see the situation in Palestine and Israel in a decade or two decades' time? You know, this is an important question, but it's not a question of how I see it. You know, I here I really think it's important to emphasize. Um, the potential of human agency. Uh, it's important for people to understand the situation on the ground, to debunk the myths around the peace process, to expose what Israel has been doing and this cynical arrangement that has been created that is sustained not just by Israel, but much more fundamentally by the Western powers which tolerate this situation, which treat Israel as a, as a normal power instead of as an apartheid power that is engaging in, 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 in basically a, a slow motion apartheid slash ethnic cleansing agenda. Now, if if these if those forces are allowed to continue, uh, and the colonization of Palestine continues, uh, and the, fra- the Palestinian fragmentation continues, uh, it can only lead to obviously much more misery and also much more of an explosive situation. But it's not just the explosive situation. We also can't be blind to the fact that Israel has an agenda to one day kick the Palestinians out of historical Palestine. Because the fact of the matter is, we have five, six, six million, if you count the Palestinians inside Israel, six, six and a half million Palestinians in the middle of uh, this Jewish 
democratic state, supposedly, self-described Jewish democratic state. And that's a major contradiction for Israel. It cannot tolerate this in the long term. All the things that I have described today are about a kind of a management situation for Israel to be able to tolerate these different contradictions. But its long-term goal is hopefully to entrench a Jewish state on the entire his, uh, territory of historical Palestine with as, as few Palestinians as possible. So that agenda will continue. Uh, Israel will continue to try and weaken the Palestinians, fragment them, de-develop them, take away their identity cards, make life hell for them, so that they make a rational choice decision that it's much more logical and much like for, for me and my family to, to go somewhere else. And that's what they hope for. Uh, whether this is done through the slow bureaucratic economic channels of what they have been doing or much faster means of using war to, 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 uh, to, to push the Palestinians. And in fact, there, there is a history of Palestinian dispossession. Uh, of, of course, 1948, the major expulsion, 67 had another half a million. You have, uh, you have at least 100,000 Palestinians who have been kicked out just by identity card confiscation since the occupation uh, took place. So the point is, we have to understand the factors that are, are taking place on the ground in, in terms of what's pushing pushing the conflict forward and what's pushing uh, what the agendas at play. And then the question becomes, well, what, what, what are we going to do about it? How do we create a, a counterforce? I don't, because answering your question, there is no preordained history of 10, 15, 20 years, 30 years. What will happen here? We, we have to understand the agendas at play, and then we have to understand the responsibilities of everybody accordingly as to what we can do to stop this reality, to stop this fate from taking place. Here it's important, I think, to emphasize the role of the role particularly of, 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 of Western taxpayers who have no interest in, in supporting an apartheid reality in, in, in Palestine, just as they had no interest in supporting a, a, a situation of such oppression in South Africa. And, uh, and, and therefore, they need to take measures to do this. What, what a big part of my research does try to emphasize is that it's not an Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's an Israeli-Palestinian-Western conflict. And the Western powers play a key role in facilitating Israel and constituting the conflict. So it's, Israel in and of itself is not, does not have the interest or the wherewithal to, 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 to make peace with the Palestinians. It's the power, more powerful party. It has an ideology that is based on exclusion and based on racist concepts, uh, even against Jews. So in this, in this, concept, in this understanding, it, it is not uh, where we need to look exclusively for a solution to the conflict. The, the, that impetus, and th that needs to be kicked back to the larger set of forces that facilitate Israel acting as, a norm, uh, uh, acting as it does. And, and that's why emphasis on the larger periphery and the larger culpability of Western powers in facilitating this conflict comes into play. Uh, uh, there will be, there is no preordained history to, to, to what will take place here. All the elements that I've described will continue to exist. They will continue to perpetuate and, and get worse unless actors 
uh, take it upon themselves to uh, to resist it. And uh, people have agency. People have power. They both as individuals, but also as groups. And history has shown that that when people organize, they can they can push back. But it takes concerted effort. It takes building institutions, building knowledge, collecting resources, uh, finding ways where leverage can be exerted to be able to prevent what uh, such injustices from being perpetuated. And, and, and that's the real question. Don't ask me what it looks like in 20 years or 30 years. Ask the Western listener what his role and what his taxpayers' dollars will go to, uh, what they want their, their dollars go, going towards. Do they want it to go towards apartheid? Or are they going to say, no, I don't want that. I want those, those dollars to go back into my schools and my medical services. And uh, not uh, and not to oppressing people outside. Those are, that's the real question that needs to be asked. That was Dr. Taufik Haddad, whom I spoke to via phone from Ramallah in the West Bank. He's the author of Palestine Limited: Neoliberalism and Nationalism in the Occupied Territory, published by IB Taurus. Have a look on globalizationcafe.com for some more details and a link to the book. This podcast was a production of the Human Rights Research and Education Centre at the University of Ottawa. It was produced by me, Dr. Philip Bleach No. If you'd like further information or to get in touch, find us on our website at globalizationcafe.com, on Twitter at Cafe Global, or on Facebook, where you'll find updates about forthcoming shows and other research and activities that we're up to.